Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. There's not that much cricket to talk about this week, but there's plenty of other stuff to talk about related to cricket. We've got the rain-affected latest round of the county championship, a bit of international cricket, but most interestingly, with the England-New Zealand series not that far away, we'll be looking back at the Black Caps' visit to these shores in 2015 that featured a thrilling test series and the ODI series with the highest run rate of all time. We've got Sam Billings on the show later to talk about it all. Billings made his England debut that series, where England set down the blueprint for their World Cup triumph four years down the line. I'm Yaz Ryan, and with me today is former England batsman Mark Butcher, the managing editor of Wisden.com, Ben Gardner, and the magazine editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, which goes to print either today or tomorrow. Joe Harmon. Today, in a couple of hours. Excellent. Are you all done? I'm done. Phil's obviously (laughs) lagging behind, but yeah. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we had been a bit spoilt by how good the championship had been recently. So I think we were due around where the rain played an irritatingly prominent role in proceedings. But there were still plenty of good cricket and interesting storylines for us to get our teeth stuck into. Joe, let's start with your moment of the week. Yeah, mine was a uh, another stellar performance from Craig Overton, who is fast becoming county cricket's MVP. In fact, I think he is that officially on the, the PCA's charts. Um, he was the star of the show as Somerset defeated Hampshire by 10 wickets at the Aegeus. Took two for 16 from 11 overs, then hit 74 from 93 balls, then five for 66 from 40 overs. So a pretty epic performance from Overton. And it's kind of just what we're becoming used to over the last couple of years. His numbers are astonishing. Uh, So since the start of 2020, 62 wickets at 13.7, 459 runs at 33. Um, so Taha's written a nice little thing for him about him in the next magazine saying he's starting to kind of occupy this middle ground where he's a bit too good for county cricket it seems at the moment and really should get an opportunity in test cricket it's just very hard to see 
how that's going to happen given their kind of wealth of pace options they've got at the moment. Yeah, it's worth saying that he's never been this dominant in county cricket before. So when he's played for England, he's had good county numbers, but he's never been this dominant. He's, and also his batting's at a level that's never really been before. I think he averages over 30 with a bat over the last couple of years. The general consensus has been that he's 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 a bit quicker than he was well, when he played for cricket. Tom Abel, Somerset's captain, told you, I think, or Ben yeah, last, last year, year yeah. when you interviewed him. And, and that's certainly what I've seen on... on um, on the stream, suggest he is bowling quicker. Um, I'd be amazed if he doesn't go to Australia this winter. It's just whether they can get some test cricket before then. Um, the interesting thing about him, I think he's a bit different to some of the other bowlers that England have got. I spoke to Steve Kirby, who's Somerset's fast bowling coach, uh, who said Overton, the more he bowls, the better he bowls. So a lot of these quicks like Ollie Stone, Mark Wood, they kind of need to be wrapped in cotton wool. You kind of bring them out for maybe one or two games a series. Overton seems to just be a player that just kind of needs those overs to keep going and gets better and better as he does so that's quite a useful thing to to have especially in a potentially quite grueling ashes tour also he bats a lot of these bowlers a lot of these quicks don't bat especially well overton based on current form could actually be a test number eight at a push certainly a, a very good number nine so you've got quite a lot going for him it's just whether he can first of all get ahead of ollie robinson in the queue and then leapfrog some of the kind of the existing pace options uh, who are going to be hard to budge because they're all bloody good bowlers. Yeah, Robinson, Robinson's I guess the name that's not been around for as long, but Overton's actually younger than than Robinson. I mean, just he's been around the England setup, the periphery of it for for quite quite a while. Um, question for for all of you, really. Can you can you remember any other bowlers in the past who've had short little bursts in the England side when they were twenty three, twenty four? Spent a few years away from the team and then came back and did really well. Obviously, Anderson is the most obvious. Chris Wokes as well, I guess. Yeah. Like, um, he, I mean, he took a few goes at it to uh, before that Pakistan series in 2016 when he was a uh, sort of just a, a, a another level. He really struggled in that series in in South Africa before that, and I think he sort of might well have thought that that was maybe his last go. I think his average was sort of skyrocketing at that point, and then he took nine for in a game for Warwickshire and then got the call back up and then has kind of not looked back since, especially at home. So he's one, I guess. Any others? I suppose the thing, the, the thing with Overton as well, that he, he didn't, it's not like he kind of disgraced himself when not he played before. He, he bowled all. fine. He, he, got, he obviously got Steve Smith out. He, he batted very bravely, particularly in New Zealand. Did he top score against New mm. Zealand? In, when they, when he was all out. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, almost held on for a draw in the Ashes as well. So I think he's got a little bit of credit on the bank, even though in, in the bank, even though he looked perhaps a little bit short of test class. So mm. it's not like other bowlers in the past who have, got to go done terribly and almost been sort of discounted for the reckoning. I think he's he's always been there or thereabouts. He just looks a, a better player each year. Yeah, I mean, but it's interesting that he, you're right, he didn't look overawed when he played Test cricket, but he's also featured in some of English cricket's kind of lowest moments in Test cricket over the last few years, like that 58 all out when he didn't disgrace himself. Again, the old Trafford Test when we lost the Ashes at home for the first time since, what, 2001? Uh, not entirely his fault. You know, no, yeah. no, exactly. <laughs> not, not his fault. And in fact, he did, he did as much as anyone to, to try and avert that in that game. But, but he's suggesting he's some sort of curse on English cricket. The, <laughs> well, sort, of, the, the sort of anti-Tim <laughs> Bresnan. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Or he, Sam Curran or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But it is interesting. He's, been, he's played four test matches, all, all defeats. And uh, the, the 2019 one was just quite strange. It just kind of took people by surprise when he played for England because um, uh, Sam Curran had been in the squad at that point, had a really good 2018. But it was, um, yeah... Overton was picked ahead of him. Yeah, I wonder, just on what Joe was saying about his batting position, I wonder if England might almost hope he could be a makeshift number seven. I don't know if we want to talk about the test stuff. It looks like you want to. Too much. But but it's just, it's just. I mean, we, we don't yet know which of those players who've come back from the IPL 
are going to be available or make themselves available for that. And if if Sam Curran and Chris Wokes both choose to sit out, which they you know, they've both had pretty tough winters and you know haven't seen their, their families all that much and that sort of thing, uh, Craig Overton is one of the more realistic options to kind of fill that all rounder slot, I guess. And that average of just above thirty is like you'd ideally like that to be higher. But he's you know played at Taunton where bowlers generally are on top. So I, I wonder, and and he's also. He's getting the kind of those clutch runs as well, I think. Like he's actually, he's almost quite reliable for Somerset in that when they're four or, four, or five or six down, but he's there, they still kind of feel that they have that hope, I think. And I wonder if that kind of almost that sense for season at the moment will make him hope that he can do that job, even if it's just for, for two games in this series. Yeah, seven feels still too high though, I think, because he doesn't really, he's usually at eight for Somerset, isn't he? I mean, he certainly was when he scored. I think he was even nine because the night watch when he scored is 70. It seems quite a lot to ask a fast bowler who's informed to come into the test side and bat higher than they do for their for their county. I think I think England probably might need to pick... Very 90s. <laughs> very 90s. <laughs> very 90s. They'd be batting at six in that 99 side, wouldn't yeah. they? I mean, well, I haven't got much to say on the, on the subject, really, beyond the fact that bowlers generally, if they come into the side as with, you know, with a bit of a... A reputation behind them is usually injury that sees them miss out for the next four or five years as opposed to being picked too soon and discarded. And the other thing is, is we're reading that England are very likely to have sort of, not a scratch squad, but like a, a second a second choice team out in the in the test matches against New Zealand, which, I, which I'm horrified by. Me too. But, but I, I can see, I can see why. But, I, but I'm horrified by the idea that you would do that with a team as good as, well, the number one team in the world for a start, um, team that's going to be fighting for the for the World Test Championship for, for second. Yeah, not, not a good look. From what Giles has said in the last week or so, it looks like it'll be up to the players who were in the IPL to see if they're going to be available for that series. What, what's your impression of, of whether or not they'll, they'll actually make themselves well, available? Well, I mean, I again... I, I have sympathy in in some ways, but I have none in others. You know, the 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 IPL is what it is for players. They can decide to play in it or or not. Um, they also have positions in an England team or caps to win an England team that that shouldn't be taken for granted. So I would imagine that there aren't many of the guys coming back from the IPL, particularly given that it's been cut short. That would turn around and say, actually, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to play for England in Test matches against New Zealand. I'd, I'd, I'd be horrified by that, honestly. I was just thinking more from like a welfare point of view, no, like well, guys, I don't, like long but, winters, but, but etc. But that, but that, everybody's in the same boat, really. Um, as I've said, you didn't, you, you, you don't you, choosing to go to the IPL, even though the, the team very, very, or Owen Morgan and, and the selectors very keen for the players to go to the IPL because of the World T20 coming up. I understand all of that stuff. But then to turn around and say, you know what, I'm going to sit out of the test matches if selected because of the IPL, which didn't even finish. Um, that's wrong. I'd be amazed if Chris Wokes, for example, I'm sure he's desperate to play in that uh, first yeah, test. I he's mean, hardly played any cricket. Yeah, I mean, sake. Phil's just interviewed for Nutcombe magazine. He was in, I think as he talks about, it, he was in India, not enjoying life. He's back. I think the prop decision might well be taken out of his hands, though, because there'll be other bowlers who have someone like Robinson, someone like Overton have been taking wickets in, in county cricket, who this is an opportunity to give them a go. Um, so it's different. There's a, I think there's a difference between saying we're picking some second string players to this is the best side to pick for this certain game. And I'm absolutely on board with the, the latter. And if that means giving someone like Ollie Robinson a debut, then then great. But just mixing up for the sort of sake of mixing it up and 
worrying about workloads and stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm no, not and, with that and, at all. and there is, you know, there is the small matter of an Ashes tour to be, to think about. I think the Ashes tour bit is relevant. So I, I basically agree with both what you said, mm. but Ben, you were quite persuasive when you were kind of uh, the other day when you explained to me that Ollie Robinson or Craig Overton, there is a more obvious way into the eleven in a five-match Ashes series where there's lots going on, where their style of bowling might be more favourable than some other players in the England camp. Um, but you want them to have played Test cricket before then? Yeah, I think so. So, so I can see a real argument for England basically looking at the the, the nine bowlers. I think we counted that they've got uh, who pace could, bowlers as well. Pace bowlers who, who could sort of do a job in Test cricket and looking at them as a group from. Uh, now on basically until the end of that Ashes and say may- maybe you sort of have a few of different types and you're obviously monitoring people's fitness but kind of saying we want all these guys we, we think all these guys are going to play a part so let's sort of let's not wait until someone breaks down or is really showing signs of fatigue but just rest and rotate as we go and I mean I know we don't know how good Overton will be in Test cricket and how much he's actually improved and what that will translate to and we don't know how good Robinson is but from what the judges say and that sort of thing they they, they, they seem like they'll do a a pretty capable job, so I can I can see the argument for uh, for sort of just mixing and matching kind of from now essentially. But the, the one thing I do think is that I wonder if England now look back at last summer and wonder if if that was a slight missed opportunity because I completely agree that uh, England shouldn't take this New Zealand challenge lightly, and if they're not careful, they'll go into the Ashes having lost their last three Test series because of how good New Zealand are, and how good India are, and if they don't take them seriously, then that could well happen. Uh, but I also understand the motivation to want the likes of Wally Robinson to play, to make his debut, James Bracey as well, possibly, uh, and Craig Overton. And it feels like last summer against two weaker teams in sort of some slightly less high-profile games, that was the chance to uh, to give well, those I guys mean, a go. Th- you say that, though, but Mark Wood played one test match all summer. You know, there were bowlers who, who would reasonably expect to, to go, well, would definitely expect to go on the Ashes Tour, who didn't get a game in those circumstances. So if you start off from the position whereby you're, you're, you're picking a team that you, you know, that you, you, you're always going to end up with one, maybe one debutant or something like that. One member of the bowling lineup is perhaps, perhaps new, but to do it wholesale because you're trying to give people a go um, whilst resting, you know, players who would be first choice. Chris Wokes, again, I'll go back to him. He hasn't played a test match since Pakistan last summer. You know, th- those guys aren't going to want to sit out. Mm-hmm. So I, so if, if you know, it's a bit of a cop-out to say, um, we're going to leave it up to the players to decide. It's either your policy that this is what you want to do. Again, going back to our selection sort of talk and who's in charge of selection and who, you know, the fact that there is now no separate entity in charge of selection. You either say, this is our policy and, and we're going to be resting you players and that is we'll take that on. That's our decision. Or um, or you play the best team that you can pick. Put it on the players to say, we, we, you know, if you feel like you want to have a rest and sort of passing the buck in terms of whose responsibility that decision is, I don't like that either. Mm. I'm not liking very much already this week. <laughs> well, Should we move on? <laughs> well, ne- well, I think next week... We've done week- well about not speaking about England's yeah. test squad, haven't we? <laughs> well, next week, by the time we record, uh, England will probably have named their test squad, so we can talk about it all again next week. Ben, elsewhere with that Somerset team, um, obviously we talked about their bowling, um, but a couple of batsmen doing right at the moment, and, and you, you're, you're interested in two of them, Tom Abel and Stephen Davies. Yeah, well, Stephen Davies especially is just a really interesting story uh, throughout his career, really. Obviously, uh, started out as this kind of 
white ball dasher uh, and got his, his go in England doing that. I think, you, what, what were you saying is his ODI numbers were? He's averaging... Well, he averages 30, but his strike rate was over 100, which for the 2009, 2010 England side was revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and he sort of changed himself. I was just speaking to Jason Kerr, the Somerset coach, who's saying that he's kind of, his white ball stuff is sort of possibly slightly in decline, but he's actually just improved as a, a red ball batsman kind of since he's moved to Somerset and is a... Uh, now kind of just one of their most reliable but the one I think the one that really interests me from a current point of view is Tom Abel who um, is obviously had a, an interesting career at Somerset got the captaincy really young even in a side with some really established players uh, and then dropped himself halfway through his first season because of his poor form uh, and has since become kind of their pretty much their most reliable player I guess this season he's their top run scorer and he, he's one of those that uh his numbers often don't lead on the page because he doesn't get these huge scores. Like I think this season, he's the, the guy with the most runs in county cricket without 100, which is very typical of him. Um, he wasn't in England's 55-man training group last year, despite having been on that Lions tour. So it's kind of almost hard to see what England think of him, where they see he's at. But I think he's one of those when you when you see him play, he makes he makes tough runs. He makes runs at the, the right time. And he also seems like he can do both sort of the, the playing of pace and spin, which you have to do if you're at Taunton when both are really in the game. So, uh, yeah, he, he he's quite exciting. I'm interested to see how the rest of the year goes uh, for him. And Somerset, do you reckon this is their year, Joe? Well, no, I've said it won't be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that it will be. But they're, they're going all right. They had that blip, didn't they? Lost to Gloucestershire, but yeah. two wins since then. So, they go, yeah, they're going nicely. Yeah, and on Gloucestershire, there's a very good win for them on Live on Sky. Ben, you were there for some of it. They're looking pretty good at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about James Bracey enough, but I think that might be my first time seeing him back I must my first time seeing him back live, uh, and he was uh, he was excellent. Uh, made a very nice seventy five, and then took a good catch. Uh, and yeah, they kind of seem like they've got it all covered. They now got that just that winning habit, and it's uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 just reward for that twenty nineteen season when they won promotion, which ended up not counting Being a promotion. Yes, uh, but it's good that that that's the building blocks of of this success now. And yeah, there's there's a, a really big game that we coming up between Gloucester and Somerset because they look like the two front runners for that group. And the teams that the top two that go through take some points through as well. So with Gloucester having already got the, the bragging rights with the win at Taunton, uh, there'll be a, a sort of quite a lot riding on that, I think. Mm. Uh, David Payne had a really good game, mm-hmm. taking a 10 for that. Um, and they just have a, a, a bowling attack, which is not the most exciting to watch because they all bowl quite similar speeds and just keep it quite simple. But doing the job at the moment. Yeah, and D- Dan Worrell there overseas, uh, he looks almost like the weakest member of that attack, which is, I think, quite a... A sign of the the tax overall strength. Found out an interesting thing about Dan Worrell this week. Go on about uh, a ban he got when he was playing <laughs> in Australian cricket in either 2013 or 2014 for uh, scratching. Are we allowed to say that word on this? Yeah, yeah. But for, for scratching a, a penis into the pitch with his spikes. Uh, like, right. So uh, it's, it's it's quite good for for our so work. Scratching wasn't the, the one you were worried. About. <laughs> <laughs> you can definitely say penis on a podcast. Okay, can't good. You? Uh, that's a... So uh, that's a. Uh, that's my interesting fact about Dan Worrell. <laughs> Wonderful. Elsewhere, Notts won their second game on the bounce this time against defending champions Essex. North Ants beat Sussex by an innings where Ben Sanderson and Gareth Berg took 19 of the 20 Sussex wickets to fall. Um, they looked like they could get all 20 That would, been, that would have been a, a world record, wouldn't it? Uh, well, Two it happens to get... very rarely. I think the last time Two... it happened was 15 years ago, Panasar and somebody else at North Ants. Took all uh, 20. Yeah, between took all 20. Wow. Um, so it was the 20th wicket that went yeah, down. Yeah, and it was, to it was Tom Taylor ruined the fun by getting the last wicket. Um, 
Uh, Taha has spoken to Berg in the last couple of days and um, quite interesting. Berg is the player head coach of Italy yes, at the moment. He is. Which is, uh, which is quite interesting. Mm. Can't be many player head coaches in international cricket. No, he's a proper survivor as well because Middlesex let him go several years ago saying that he, he basically wasn't fit enough for them to give him a contract and he's, he's obviously still going strong. He's 40. Playing, 40. Yeah. Mm. Playing international cricket, domestic cricket, mm. cleaning up. Absolutely. Um, there, was, there was quite a funny photo of the two of them holding the, the match ball off the first innings. And I think that Sanderson and Berg look like what you'd expect Joe Root and Mark Wood to look like in five, ten years' time. Um, it was more of a visual joke. It works very yeah, well. Works... Go look at Yaz's tweet. Did that, that go viral? On, on, uh, yeah, half viral. Half yeah. viral. Um, we'll, we'll try and put it up on the, on the YouTube video for people to see. <laughs> Um, well, let, let, let's go to international cricket. Um, Pakistan beat Zimbabwe by an innings and 147 runs to take that series 2 0. The double ton for Abid Ali, a century for Azhar Ali, and lots of wickets for Hassan Ali, um, who is the leading wicket taker in the world in 2021 in both tests and T20Is. He averages just 22 in test cricket, which, mm-hmm. you know, he burst on the scene um, four or five years ago as a, as a predominantly white wall bowler. But he's had, a had an amazing Champions Trophy, didn't he? That's where he kind of made his name yeah. and then faded strangely because he looked like he was going to be a proper world beater at that Injuries, stage. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I think he had a really, really good season in first-class cricket and now and, and his batting's improved as well. He, he, he didn't get any runs, but he, he was batting seven in the, in the second test. Um, uh, one thing that's quite interesting is uh, Pakistan gave a debut to 36-year-old seamer Tabish Khan. So... One to keep an eye on. Got to be thirty-six or seventeen, <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, Nothing in the middle. Yeah. Um, Did he take his six hundredth first-class wicket in the game? No, I think he's on five nine nine. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Nearly, nearly. Um, there, there was quite a tedious debate after the game about whether Zimbabwe should be allowed to play Test <sighs> cricket. Uh, Ramiz Raja said, "I hope they do well in the future, but for now, they should not play Test cricket and concentrate <laughs> only on white ball cricket." I'm not sure how he expects them to do well in the future. They don't play Test cricket, and there's a couple of interesting stats to put that in their defeat in, in perspective. Both of Pakistan's wins this series were by smaller margins than their defeat in the second test of their tour of New Zealand this year. Pakistan have also lost all of their last 14 tests in Australia, three of the last four by innings, and I haven't heard that many people say that Pakistan shouldn't play test cricket in Australia. Um, anything, anyone wants to add on that? Or Well, Ben or? covered this very well in his, in his kind of typically acerbic column for the magazine is it the, the kind of lovely cheery man you hear on this podcast is much spikier <laughs> in uh, in print in the magazine but yeah i mean obviously it's it's just mind-numbingly stupid to say we won't play them we won't play them and then when you do play them and they're not quite what you expect yeah. in terms of standard then you say oh we, we shouldn't be playing them I mean, it's just so frustrating mm. i think uh, zimbabwe also won their fourth most recent test against pakistan but that was seven or eight years ago so it's a uh, yeah, and they also won the T20I yeah, in, in a couple series, of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah I think... It's all... not helpful. Mm. It isn't helpful. I mean, you know, the, on the one hand, you're trying to... You want Test Match Cricket to, to thrive and, and to enthrall people um, in the way that it does us. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the, the damaging parts of that is when you have mismatches. But those mismatches come between established teams and teams that are not established. Um, and really the only, you know, it's, it's finance um, that really sort of talks in these circumstances um, and whereby if teams like Australia can get away with never playing against Bangladesh, you know, the, the, those sort of things hurt the game. 
Um, but the reason that it happens and the reason that it is allowed to happen and the reason teams aren't keen to host Zimbabwe is because you you know, you know put three test matches worth of your summer schedule on a team that is not a big draw card and it hurts you financially. Um, again, there is, a, there is an answer to this and that is that the ICC sort of makes sure that, that there are subsidies in place for all international cricket. Obviously, some nations don't need it, but you have to do it. If you do it for one, you do it for everybody to make sure that it is not more or less lucrative to dodge playing teams like that in the same way as I would have, um, you know, a minimum, a minimum wage for, for players on test match, playing, playing test matches so that the decision to not play for your country becomes a, a financially, financially viable one. Um, think West Indies, think, you know, other, other teams that lose players that go off and play franchise cricket instead of playing for their country. All of these things can be taken care of by the centre um, with a bit of will. Um, and you do that and you make it and you make it so that it is absolutely imperative that everybody gets to play everybody and everybody gets their experience and you have hopefully you have less mismatches mm. and the game spreads, you know, and that's that's in everybody's interest. The IC I think have almost tried to force more games between countries that don't normally play each other in, in the World Test Championship and more obviously in the ODI Super League. I don't think you'd ever see without something like that an England three-match series scheduled against the Netherlands without something like that. So I think that's... No, and but it has to happen. It has to happen for the for the longer form of the game as well. It has to. Um, either that or, you know, you only three team, teams play it and, and then the whole thing eats itself anyway. So th- there has to be a solution. It's not good enough. It isn't good enough just... For everyone to say, oh, well, you know, oh, isn't it a little bit jolly that Australia haven't played in Bangladesh for the last 10 years? Or, you know, well, Ramiz has got a point about Zimbabwe. Do something about it. Do something. Elsewhere in the international game, uh, BJ Watling has announced that he will retire from all forms of cricket at the end of New Zealand's tour of England, which includes the Test Series against England and the World Test Championship final. This century, only two wicketkeeper batsmen have scored more Test runs at a higher average than Watling, Gilchrist and Pryor. Uh, Joe, just a very good player in a team that's doing very well at the moment, has done for a long time. Yeah, hugely reliable. Um, I think his keeping has been really good, one of the best in the in the world for his keeping alone. Uh, and then you've got the batting on top of that, which was, I mean, he, I, mean I think we picked our test team of the year for 2019, would it have been, that he was he was the keeper in that. Um, yeah, and he's, he's, he's kind of your, your classic Kiwi test cricketer, quite understated. And you look at his record and you think, wow, what what a player. Um, they're fortunate they've got Tom, Tom Blundell coming through. He's kind of already been part of that setup. So that, again, what they, New Zealand seems to do quite well is, is line up replacements for players before they go. And that looks like a kind of quite smooth transition, all being well. Uh, but no doubt he'll be missed. Uh, and it will be, well, I really hope he can get some runs here this summer and kind of uh, finish off in style. He is a guy that you ask... You ask your bowlers who the sort of, sort of player, the sort of batsman that you love, and he is he is that. You know, they get to put their feet up, get a massage, maybe have another one. They know they're not going to be bowling again the next morning. You know, they they are, and then by the time time comes to make that declaration, they are ready to go. Second innings of games, they absolutely bowlers love players like BJ Watling. And they must hate bowling against him as well yeah. you get you get five wiggers and BJ Watling comes in you yeah. know that's pretty demoralizing no, pretty tough I mean he's been a, he's been a, a wonderful wonderful player yeah I was looking at his stats as a keeper for New Zealand he's got the most runs the best average most hundreds most dismissals so he's kind of 
out in front basically in all departments as, as a wicketkeeper for New Zealand in Test cricket. Uh, where I think we're probably going to talk about him more because of the 2015 series, I guess, when he had a defining impact on. But there were two. Do, do you remember he, play, he played uh, a part in t- two conse- or two world record stands for the sixth wicket in Test cricket, less than a year apart at the same ground? First accompanying Brendan McCullum in uh, when he made his triple hundred, which rescued New Zealand from like an absolutely hopeless position against India. I think they were over 150 behind and five wickets down when Watling came in and ended up saving that game, which isn't something that should be possible, really. <laughs> and then again, the next year... They unveiled with, a plaque yes. to commemorate it. Uh, um, and then he broke it yeah. in that very same game, yeah, when uh, Kane Williamson made a double 100. And again, they were effectively 27 for five, I think, against Sri Lanka. And he made a, a big 100 again. They ended up winning that game. So yeah, he, he's, what, he's one of those that's also done it in the tough situations as well. He's, a, he's, he's not at all your traditional way he a batsman in terms of the sort of the swashbuckling sort of thing. He just comes in and plays kind of like a proper batsman, but also uh, just plays absolutely normally, I guess, all the way through. And uh, yeah, that's what marks him out. Mm. Um, back in the UK, the England women's A side beat the England women's side in a, in a warm-up game at Loughborough. Lauren Winfield Hill scored an unbeaten 140 to help the A side chase down 270 with nearly five overs to spare. Um, some other good performances for the A-side. Um, a half century for George Adams, opening the batting, and a three for, for Mandy Villiers, who has obviously played for England. Um, but yeah, that's good to see. The two teams, um, there are a lot of players in the A-team who've played quite a lot of international cricket. So, Well, I think, it's, I think that's brilliant because, I mean, we covered the the final of the, the domestic 50-over competition last year. And obviously England's series against the West Indies at the, the back end um, on Sky. Uh, freezing cold whilst in Derby. Um, and, and the feeling has been, you know, I've done quite a bit of, quite a bit of stuff with the England women over the, over the last four or five years. And the feeling has been a little bit that whilst highly professional, very, very good team, they're kind of, they're, there has been very next to, to no um, players breaking in from, from underneath. The depth perhaps wasn't quite strong enough to, to, to knock Australia off their perch. Um, and also that the, the England selectors and the and the coaching staff and the, the hierarchy were not all that keen on sort of breaking up the established um, the established order there. So that's really good, really great that they've kind of you know thrown a bit of it. I mean, Lauren Winfield Hill has been around forever, you know, sort of um, as a as a as a squad player for. But somebody like Georgia Adams, who was by far and away the leading run scorer in the in the uh, in the comp last year might have found it very difficult to break in, but for something like this. So, you know, it, it's keeping them all on their toes anyway. Absolutely. Some some fun chat about cricket bats. So a study by the University of Cambridge has suggested that cricket bats made of bamboo offer a more sustainable alternative to ones made of willow. Darshal Shah, one of the researchers behind the study, said that bamboo bats are stiffer, harder and stronger, although more brittle. In the Guardian report on the story, they say it takes about 15 years before a willow tree can be harvested, after which new trees must be planted. Between 15 and 30% of the wood is also wasted during bat production. Bamboo is cheaper, plentiful, fast-growing and sustainable. Shoots are available to grow from previous stumps and maturity is reached after seven years. Um, But the serious point on this is that in um, countries where cricket isn't big, it is genuinely quite difficult to uh, produce lots of bats. Um, and so that, that was an interesting article. Then the MCC got involved the next day and they released a statement on the use of bamboo bats. And they said, currently, law 5.3.2 states that the blade of the bat 
must consist solely of wood. So for bamboo, which is a grass, to be considered as a realistic alternative to willow would require a law change. Um, a law change? Yeah. Oh my God. Would you, how, that's how would you go about doing one of those? But, I mean, but Ben, that's the, that's the laws taking care of every eventuality. Or, <laughs> as they always do. As they always do. Ben, ben once um, spoke for about five minutes on the pod about how much he loves... What was You gave one ridiculous line about how much you love the laws. I can't, I can't yeah. remember. I think it was more than five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, another interesting thing about that is that I've I've sort of gone into to bat, forgive me, um, for defending sort of bat manufacturers and defending players actually, because oh, God knows, I mean, how boring it is to, for for to hear fellow commentators to writers to have you know the general public have this idea that somehow. The reason that players are able to score at the rates that they score is down to bats more than anything else, which is complete and utter nonsense. You know, it's as you know, because every time a team gets bowled out for a hundred, they haven't taken out the wrong bat, have they? You know, it's not; it's the players and it's their their conditioning and it's their it's their the practice regimes that um, you know that have them scoring at rates that were not were unthink were unthinkable um, twenty years ago, and so that the uh, the idea of a bamboo bat is interesting to me simply because. It highlights the fact that the equipment that people are using is still made out of exactly the same substances as Jack Hobbs was using or W.G. Grace was using all those years ago. It's still willow, held together by glue, twine, cane for the handle. You know, you haven't what you haven't seen in cricket, yes, they've managed to, to work out different ways of distributing the wood and pressing techniques and all this kind of stuff. But a cricket bat is still made out of the same stuff that it was made out of 100 years ago. Whereas in all the other sports, whether you're talking motorsport, whether you're talking running shoes, whether you're talking golf clubs, tennis rackets, all of the technology has actually very much changed the performance of these, of these pieces of equipment. And cricket is by and large exactly the same. The players are very different, but the stuff is still the same. Mm. Mm. There you go. That's a bit boring stuff for you. It is interesting. It is interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think the the other serious point is just that uh, in countries like Brazil or China, Japan, getting into cricket, they they just don't have a production line of bats. Um, and if there is a quicker way of um, bringing bats through, then got to be all for well, it. If you imagine the hoo ha that there has been around something that that hasn't changed at all, <laughs> right? Bats, as I said, bats are still exactly the same. Um, imagine the the amount of testing and and um, and and hand wringing there is going to be if suddenly they're made out of a different material. Oh my yeah. god! Yeah, I mean, I, w- I just wouldn't be surprised. If there was a law change, basically. That that was all the same. Was thing was acknowledging that right the now current laws. Yeah, but but you know, these laws do change. They're not as a uh, uh, in you know as as fixed as as it can seem when you call them a law like that. So, yeah. mm. what's your moment of the week, Ben? Oh, uh, my moment of the week is the pub. Well, the publishing of the first of a six part series written by. Scott Oliver, one of our freelancers, it's maybe his life's work on a on Adrian Shankar, who made his Worcestershire... Or, so he signed for Worcestershire 10 years ago on the Monday just gone uh, and was released, I think, about 17 days later when they found out that um, details about tournaments that he claimed to have played in and his uh, his date of birth had been fabricated. So that was already an interesting story, but it goes... Uh, Far, far beyond that when you see the scale of... So there were sort of websites created that uh, s- uh, said that he'd been, you know, hugely successful in this Sri Lankan... It's the Mercantile T20 tournament is what it was called. Uh, the games had just, like, never happened. 
uh, he claimed uh, that he'd hit Rangan Harath for five sixes and over, maybe six sixes was too sort of unrealistic, uh, and that had never happened. Uh, there was one line in the piece from Luke Sutton, uh, who was writing in the Daily Mail back at the time, who was at Lancashire, where Shankar had spent a stint as a second level cricketer. So we said that Sh- Shankar wasn't a totally hopeless cricketer. He made a, a century for the uh, Cambridge Varsity team when he was there. Uh, did, did did some okay stuff in club cricket, and you know played some second eleven without entirely disgracing himself. Although you wouldn't have said he stood out by any means. Uh, but so so when he was at Lancashire, um, uh, they the, the subject of him being three years older than he actually said came up, and Luke Sutton asked him about it, and Shankar said that he was a uh, uh, he spent the first three of his life three years of his life in a coma and on life support, and that's why uh, he was physically three years uh, younger than his age uh, suggested he should be. And then Sutton said, surely you grew during that time. Uh, and he said that Shankar looked him dead in the eye and said, no, I didn't. And then walked off. <laughs> uh, yeah, like there's, there's so much good stuff in there. It's really long and the whole series is really long, but I promise you it's, it's, it's worth it. It is worth it. And out. do we know what he's up to now or is that, is that all to that, come? That's to, to be fine. Yeah, don't, don't want to give too, to much too much away. Okay. Um, but but Scott will be with us on the show next week for a little bit. Talk through uh, talk through the Shankar. Files. I'm glad this has come to fruition because Scott has been talking about this for about as long as I've known him, <laughs> which is getting on for about as long as Adrian Shankar <laughs> has been around as a as a pretend cricketer. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad it's got there. Well, yeah. and that and that's one of the things is that people have a lot of people are saying like this needs to be made into a film. Uh, I think the thing is is the film couldn't be complete without the character playing. Scott, you know the uh, yes. the, the, the journalist who's he's been, he's been on the case. Well, that's there, the story, so. I think. Yeah. Really, Adrian Shankar is just the kind of support character. It's, it's Scott's it's Scott's life work. Uh, yeah, so we'll hopefully have Scott uh, on next week's show. Um, on to the 2015 England New Zealand series. Why why are we doing this? So. Why are we doing this? Well, so New Zealand are obviously coming to England very very soon, and. Um, like we did a couple of weeks ago, we looked back at the 99 series that Butcher's part of. Um, we're looking back at one of the more entertaining visits from New Zealand to the UK. Um, so first off, I'm going to set the scene, take us back to 2015. The, the test series was England's first after the sacking of Peter Moores following England's disappointing World Cup campaign and their drawn test series in the Caribbean. Assistant coach Paul Farbrace took charge of that series. It was announced in between the first two test matches that Trevor Bayliss would take over um, for the Ashes series that followed. Um, and on the whole, it hadn't been a great couple of years for England. Still in the shadow of the 2013-14 Ashes, they lost a home series against Sri Lanka in 2014, um, beat India at home in 2014, which is obviously a good result. But then they had that miserable World Cup campaign in 2015. Is it fair to say that was England's lowest point um, since... The the ninety nine series feels like it. Well, there was there was quite a there was quite a bad Ashes series in there somewhere, wasn't there? But Away the, from but home, I suppose well, that, there are always bad Ashes series. Well, not always, but uh, well, what was their time scale for worseness? Uh, well, an eighteen month period. Well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's tough. I, I feel like if uh, yeah, if you had to pick an actual moment, it might have been after that Lords Test against India in twenty fourteen, which yeah. England lost to go one nil down. And at that point, they'd I think lost to the last three tests against Sri Lanka and India and it looked like they might lose that series against India as well lose both home series with a team that should be beating these teams comfortably and then they bounce back from that and then you had I mean there's quite a lot of low points uh, and you know, it, it, even now we get a few every now and then but yeah. so. in terms of ODI cricket though that World Cup I mean you just described it as disappointing I think that is, that is generous I mean that was 
it, it couldn't have gone more wrong, really. I mean, out of the earliest opportunity. And some of the beatings they got were humiliating as well. Uh, and it's similar to 99 in terms of what happened in Test cricket that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It was reaching rock, rock bottom uh, in order to be able to kind of bounce back up from that and put new things in place. Mm. Yeah. We don't want to talk about the 2015 World Cup, but they didn't lay a glove on any of those uh, three sort of... Because in each group, you had four teams you'd expect to go through. And I think it was Sri Lanka, New Zealand, Australia and England were absolutely hammered by all three of them. And then obviously beaten by Bangladesh as well. Mm. So yeah, grim um, tournament. <laughs> and then in, in the... From the test point of view, we'll get onto the ODI series. We've got the chat with Billings, who's very good on that. Um, but before the test series, it's quite interesting that Ben Stokes, before that series, had never scored a test run in England. So he'd only played uh, a couple of home tests um, against India, where he was batting at eight or nine, and he got three ducks in his three innings. Um, that two test series also saw the debuts of Adam Lythe and Mark Wood. Um, and Ben, there were just two brilliant test matches. Yeah, they were. Do you want me to give the story of them? Go on. Okay, so, so the, the first game, uh, England were four down for not many uh, before lunch, I think, on the first day. And then Root and Stokes sort of did one of those Roots and Stokes partnership where Root is really busy, Stokes pretty belligerent. They both hit 90s, I think, and then got out. So England made 300-ish uh, and then Kane Williams made a brilliant 100. He didn't got a huge lead. So I think that even you know with how well England had done to sort of get up to where they had, they were going to lose heavily. And then Cook played what really is actually one of his best. Please, sir. The Kane Williamson innings was absolute filth. <laughs> it was just porn for, for batting. It really was just beautiful late playing and glides down to third man, extra coverage. Right? It was just leaves. I mean, all of it was just sex as far as batting was concerned. Sorry, carry on. I wasn't sure which way you were going to go when you said it was absolute no, filth. No, no, it was, it was, you know, there was, I remember there being lavish movement. It was a greenish, greenish deck. It did all sorts. And he just played it on his, on his nana. Sorry, carry on. Just uh, it's a lovely description. And, and, <laughs> and pr- probably was in stark contrast to, to Cook's innings, which was in really tough conditions. And he kind of ground out one of his best hundreds for England, really, considering the match situation and the, the quality of that attack. So he kind of laid the bedrock and then Stokes uh, scored the fastest 100 by an Englishman at Lords and was, I guess, his his second great test innings at that point. And he's uh, very few of his hundreds you would count as not being properly great, I think, still. Uh, and then in so England, from having been way behind the game, managed to scrape together like enough of a lead to sort of uh, try and get New Zealand all out on the next day. Stokes took two wicks in and over, I think. I think they were yeah, Williamson, Williamson and McCullum. And McCullum, yeah. And then... Uh, Mo and Ali took a, a brilliant catch sort of in front of a, a packed house crowd uh, down at third man to win it. And it was just like that that final, I mean, the, the whole test was brilliant, but that final day just felt kind of like raucous and exciting and kind of new in a way that like English cricket as a whole hadn't felt for quite a long time. And then the second game was, was also... That the, was it the, also the biggest, the highest run aggregate for a test match at Lord's? That sounds 1600, right. Because 1,600 runs or something. Because it went quite deep. At the time, I don't know if it's been beaten by well, then, yeah. but it, it was it was certainly a massive amount of runs. Because when I was looking back through it, I was thinking, how the heck did anybody win this game, yeah. given, <laughs> given that there were that many runs scored? But yeah, hell of a, hell of a match. Mm. And then the next game, I think, possibly the first day was washed out to rain. So it was effectively a four-day test. So New Zealand, in that in their New Zealand style, were like, we've just got to go for ball one at this. Uh, BJ Watling had a small injury. Uh, so Luke Ronke came in, sort of smashed a seventy odd. McCullum hit his first ball for six, I think. Uh, and so then they racked up three fifty, but could have got a lot more if they'd been trying to. But they thought, like, kind of, let's kind of get that as quickly as we can. England then had a brilliant opening stand where Lyth got his hundred. Uh, 
got to 350 exactly the same as well. And so then the third innings was a real kind of tense shootout, really. So New Zealand were four for 140, I think. And that's when BJ Watling played, playing as a specialist batsman, even though it was 200 to keep, scored a sort of a really gritty rear guard 100 and New Zealand won that quite easily. So that was a brilliant series. Uh, I wonder if how that series went in terms of being reasonably successful for England almost set them back in test cricket because they were trying to play a certain style going kind of pound for pound with New Zealand where they were like, you know, backing these all-rounders and these sort of exciting young batsmen and sort of thinking if, if we let these players play with freedom and sort of express themselves, one of them's good enough that they'll win us the game. And that happened in the first game with Stokes. But actually what we're now seeing is England going away from that, thinking we've got a game plan, we've got to get big runs, sort of almost more attritional cricket. And if, if England had sort of received sort of a bit of a setback then or more of one, where they might have sort of uh, realised that lesson sooner rather than now. But yeah, it was a brilliant series anyway from an entertainment point of view. Absolutely. Sorry, I talked for ages there. No, that's okay. That's okay. Um, well, then we have the ODI series, which I think has got a reasonable claim uh, to be the most entertaining bilateral ODI series ever. The average run rate across the five games was 7.15, which is which is a world record, which is just ridiculous. It's the bats. It's the bats. Yeah, it's all the bats. Oh, because the bats. Um, and we're Imagine if they were bamboo bats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're looking early today that the four highest run scoring, um, well, the, the series with the highest run rates in ODI history have, were, were all involving England after the 2015 World Cup, which didn't come as a huge surprise. Um, but anyway, that, that series basically laid the blueprint for what was to come with that England side. And that, that was the start of their journey to the 2019 World Cup. Um, and we've got a pre-recorded interview with Sam Billings, who goes through it really well. Um, he made his debut that series as a specialist number seven, which is not something you see that often. He talks about how Morgan created an atmosphere where the players felt free and, and, and were able to play without pressure. And he also talks about an England Lions tour that came earlier that year, which included Roy Stokes himself, Vince Plunkett, Rashid Wood and a few others. Here is that conversation with Billings. Yeah, it was um, it was a bit of a kind of fresh outlook on white ball cricket, really, uh, in terms of selection. Um, all the players selected were completely... There were only a few that kind of had the baggage of that World Cup. Um, so it was a real kind of positive opportunity. And um, for us guys stepping into that, actually, it was kind of nothing to lose, really. Um, yeah, so, so it was a really good place to be and I mean Owen Morgan kind of wanted us to go out he was very very clear at the start to go out and play an attacking brand of cricket and it's easy to ban that those kind of words around but then when your captain goes and sets the tone and, and plays in exactly that manner uh, I think it was the last ODI chasing the slog swept his first ball out to deep cow but actually the knock-on effect of that regardless of the fact he got out, it was the manner in which he got out, actually thought, gave us all confidence of going, you know what, we can, we can play this attacking way um, because if the captain's doing it, well, yeah, everyone else can do it. Um, mm. and he absolutely backed everyone to do that. Um, in terms of my debut, it was one to forget really personally, but it was an amazing game of cricket. I actually, I remember I was so nervous. I was so nervous when I, when I got out there. Um, and it was, I, I think, quite a few people. Josh said this to me as well, actually, afterwards. He, he said, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of get your debut out of the way and then you can actually enjoy it after that. Um, and, he, and he was right. I think for some people that is the case. For me, it was a matter of actually your whole life's about you, you kind of build up to that moment. And actually those nerves, um, 
yeah, it becomes more enjoyable after that first game, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can imagine. How did how did Owen Morgan create that environment? Because as you say, it's very easy saying all those things, but how did he actually create it? And specifically for you, batting at seven in white ball cricket is a difficult enough job at the better times. You have to adapt to difficult conditions. You have to attack from the get-go sometimes. And if you're not establishing the team, that can be quite a difficult thing to do when you, you might think, oh, I need to score some runs and batting aggressively from the get-go is, is possibly against that. So how, how did Morgan make you feel comfortable enough to do that? Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. I, I think initially about the outlook of attacking round of cricket, um, kind of what I said before about how he set the example gives everyone else the, the ultimate confidence to do the same. So also the team selection with all the guys around you, we were all very like-minded in the way we go about our cricket as we are now and you see the progression that's happened now but I think that's the key thing is you've got a group of you who all want to move the game in the right direction in this in the same direction um it's very easy for the team to kind of shape their identity around that if you have kind of of course you have different players in the team but if the general ethos towards the team is all in that manner it's uh, that's what's going to happen kind of thing yeah I can imagine um but in that first game you know, you lost Jason Roy first ball of the series. You were 202 for six. What what was the chat like in the dressing room when you lose Roy early on? That happens, fair enough. But you were also 202 for six in the first full game after the World Cup with 20 overs to go. And then Butler and Rashid just keep going. England had never played ODI cricket like that before. Was, was there not a temptation? Did you not think for players to rein it in a little bit? Because, yeah, England, England supporters have never seen an England team back like that in ODI cricket. But isn't that a good thing? How many oh, World Cups? Don't, don't get me wrong, it's a brilliant thing. No, but that's, I, I, think, I think that's where the huge credit, rightly so, has gone to Owen Morgan the whole time, and Joss as well as vice-captain. Those two guys realised that ODI and 2020 cricket, white ball cricket in this country, had to change. We had the players for it. It's a matter of changing the process of selection and and uh, the ethos around that. So, again, when it comes from those two, and Joss, that's his natural way of playing, especially in white ball cricket. So, um, you're actually allowing people to play the way they want to play, as opposed to actually putting the brakes on and going. And at times, look, we've, we've realised over the last five years that at times when we've had a bit of a collapse and you end up getting bowled out for not as many as you should get, Actually, that's when you have a pretty honest conversation and go, like, look, we want to play that way, but sometimes the conditions or whatever it is don't allow that and we have to adjust. We have to be, um, uh, we have to be able to adjust. And I think that adjustment is actually changing how we enforce pressure on the different teams. So it's not just about fours and sixes the whole time. Actually, if it's ragging square and their spinners are really bowling well, it might be a matter of working out and scoring at a run of ball. And th- that puts a huge amount of pressure on them. Um, Joe Root is a great, yeah, I mean, one of the best at it. So it's, it's, that's just being smart and playing attacking positive cricket. It's still taking the positive option, but um, having those cricket kind of smarts in there. And mm-hmm. I suppose that's what the best teams do in any format of the game. It's uh, combining those two. And that's something that, We've done very well over the last last five, six years, as you've said. Um, you mentioned Owen Morgan's importance in dictating the way that you guys played. 
Um, I was wondering, were there any other influences, either maybe Paul Farbrace or, or maybe the opposition captain or Brendan McCullum, seeing how New Zealand had played and got to that World Cup final and just having them as the first tourist to England after that? Do, do you think that rubbed off in any way on, on the England team? Definitely. Um, I think Morgs has said it a couple of times, actually, that New Zealand team was exactly the way we wanted to play our cricket, really. Um, them being great mates obviously helps. And uh, it was a perfect storm, really, for everyone. Having, um, obviously, that World Cup, but then them coming over as the first tourists, as you said. Um, we had to play that way. We had to get up to speed with, with them. So, yeah, it ended up working out perfectly. And that series was still as good a white ball series as we've probably seen. Um, the I mean, New Zealand are a phenomenal side. And I think they're actually, um, they go under the radar way too much. Everyone talks of, obviously, England, Australia and India as the kind of powerhouses. But um, New Zealand, they're always there and thereabouts and they go about it. They... Um, I mean, yeah, their record speaks for itself in, in recent times. So, um, yeah, like I said, it was just a perfect storm that Morgs and McCullum leading the lines of both teams. Um, and, yeah, what a series that was. Um, then on, on the 2015 World Cup, did um, how, how much was that mentioned by players or management at the time? I know, I know you, 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 you rightly said that, that the personnel changed quite a lot in that series compared to the World Cup. But was that something that... Uh, Morgan or Farbrace are talking about at all? I don't think I heard it once. I think maybe at the start, the first, um, the first kind of team huddle or when we got to, we met up kind of thing. But I just don't, I don't remember that at all. It was as if, and, and like you said, because it didn't directly affect most of us, it just didn't really play on our minds. I suppose with Joss and um, Owen, there's that added motivation and the experience, the baggage, I suppose, to really turn it around. But for most of us, that's why it was, it was pretty irrelevant, if that makes sense. Uh, from a fan point of view, of course, we're all England fans. Um, of course, we kind of took it on board. But actually, as a player, you're like, well, yeah, it's nothing to do with me. So we've got a free, free crack at this. And um, yeah, away we go, I suppose. Mm. And then on a personal level, you had a couple of really important interventions in that series. First in that third game, then crucially in the series finale where you and you and Besto helped England get back into the game after a bit of a nightmare start and run chase. How did you feel that the series went for you from a personal point? Um, yeah, okay. I think I showed glimpses of what I could do um, without really setting the world alight. And, and unfortunately, that kind of kept on going, I suppose, for the next couple of years with sporadic opportunity here and there. Um, batting pretty much every position, one seven. Um, so without kind of nailing down my spot, um, I think I was just, if I'm honest, pretty young and naive. And in terms of the um, the success I had for Kent, I mean, it was still probably my best ever year when I averaged over a hundred at a strike rate of one sixty um, for Kent batting at seven, and. It kind of, I didn't really know how I did that, if that makes sense. I was just playing and batting as a young player. Um, and I think, like, well, you've seen it so much and I've experienced it firsthand now that as, as a young player going into the England team or international sport, very few crack it straight away. I mean, Joe Root got, got dropped, uh, had to go back. 
reinvent himself, come back. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, the amount of people that actually do 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 that in terms of a natural progression and, and journey. So for me, that was, it was kind of an awakening of, okay, yeah, I know I'm good enough at this level, but I'm going to have to, you know, grow up and, and just work out a few more things, basically. Um, and I suppose without that continuous run of games after that series, it's very hard to learn whilst playing international cricket, if that makes sense. You, I had to go back and, and play um, consistent cricket. And, and that's something that has obviously uh, hampered my development and maybe kind of made me develop a little bit later than other players. Um, is just the lack of game time, really. I think, the I think that's still my only full series of ODI cricket. I think I might be right in saying. Um, so in six years, um, may, of, of of course, um, Australia last year, the three match series. But um, in terms of a five match series, five games in a row, I think that that's the case. So um, yeah, look, last year I showed kind of the player. I knew I was capable of being, uh, even back then, but actually I had to change and mature mentally uh, in terms of my approach and, and yeah, kind of wise up to international cricket because there, there is a step up. Um, of course there is. Hmm. And then as a team, did that series feel like you were on the start of something special um, for the next five or so years? England were for the best ODI side in the world. Um, and then, you know, beating the World Cup runners-up in the way you did... Uh, did, you, did you feel like you were on, a, on the start of a special journey? Well, it's hard to say initially then, but once you start getting a bit of confidence in the way we play and you started winning, um, because, I mean, confidence comes from evidence at the end of the day. If you, if you don't do it, um, it's very hard to be confident in something if, if, you, if you don't know you can do it. So from a team's point of view, that confidence um, just grew and grew and grew. And, you saw, I mean, the levels in which the players were starting to elevate themselves too. Um, and this goes for the whole team. Um, I mean, Adil Rashid is a prime example of that. Um, again, probably it would be fair in saying that it was a stuttering England career um, to start before. And then now he's one of the best leg spinners in the world. And he is the jewel in the crown, really. He really is um, just an incredible talent but also asset to our side and um yeah so i think the development of players like that um the squad of players it really did change it's changed english cricket uh, for the better really because you now see the knock-on effects of all the young players all the english young players in terms of white ball i think we we've got as much depth as certainly from a batting point of view as much depth as anywhere in the world and and we could probably pick three batting lineups um, that could easily um, play in international cricket and be successful consistently. I'm a wicket keeper. I'm a wicket keeper for goodness sake, and um, <laughs> my list A record is is pretty good. Um, and it's just saying there's only one wicket keeping role, uh, but that's. But I think that's just a prime example of of where English cricket's at at the moment. I mean, keepers wise, we could pick a top seven, and and it would be just as good as anywhere. Yeah, I was going to say your, your first class record is very good as well, but we've got, we've got millions of keepers. It's, it's, it's getting better. It's getting better, my first class record. My list A is definitely uh, my strongest. Yeah. I'm playing next week. Yeah, I mean, the last three and a half months, I've 
played one game, got injured, and didn't play again. So, mm. um, so yeah, I just want to play cricket. I'm hitting the ball as well as I have done in a very long time. So, uh, working with Ponting, um, I definitely feel as if I've progressed um, and just want to get out there and put it into, into place now and get some runs. Mm, not a bad man to work with. Something that I've always been uh, fascinated is the wrong word, definitely the wrong word, but something I've always been interested in was the England Lions tour to South Africa that preceded that summer. <laughs> so the squad you had was ridiculous, and I don't think listeners will know this. Um, so just to reel off a few names, you had Stokes, Roy, Vince, Plunkett, Bairstow, yourself, Rashid, Wood. Loads of other brilliant cricketers. And in that series, England scored 370 twice. Did that series almost give you confidence in the method that you then showed you could do at international level afterwards? Because that was against a good South Africa attack as well. I think Chris Morris was playing. I think Rabada played a couple of those games. It was a seriously good South Africa team, seriously good uh, series. Do you think that series gave you confidence in the method later on that year? I, I think so. But also growing up with most of those guys together, and like you said, that's where the Lions tours and, and things like that really have a huge um, impact, I suppose. Most listeners wouldn't know that, but actually that's where, it, I mean, we don't all just turn up in international cricket and start playing and whacking it all over the place. I mean, that's the kind of environments where you've got to start learning and um, against top quality opposition. Um, the Lions tours were invaluable for, for all of us. And, and like you said, it was just... Um, building that confidence and having that clarity of, okay, right, we're going to take this on and, and having the players there that naturally play that way uh, translated straight away. And I think the team kind of chemistry element um, going straight from the lines and then going into that international environment um, definitely, definitely helps as well. Mm. It helps ease that process. People feel a lot more comfortable uh, making that step up. How, how does team chemistry impact how you bat because a lot of people talk about cricket as a sport where it's a team sport but lots of individual battles so how how does the the chemistry you have with your with your teammates um impact performance oh that's an interesting question um i think team chemistry is It is very, it's important, I think, even more so over the last two years because the amount of time we've spent away from home, the schedules and everything like that. Um, and actually, we've got a great group of human beings who don't cause many issues for each other. Um, and you see that translate, I suppose, um, with, with a lot of teams. Issues come, you see the results on the pitch with the issues behind the scenes and actually when it's happy, happy camp off the, I'm not saying like a happy team and a really nice team that get on really well, um, are going to win. They're not, but it definitely is something that helps a team because actually people are genuinely happy for other people's success. Yes, there was healthy competition, but actually being happy for each other, um, was something that I don't think necessarily in, in previous I don't know this, but in previous England dressing rooms, um, that might have been a, an issue and as has been reported uh, way before my time. But um, I think it definitely it does help because um, and having, yeah, having a strong leader um, 
kind of expecting high levels of, of kind of as a human being, as a, as a, not, not only as a cricketer, I think it's really important. Um, yeah. It's a really complex question. And some people sit there and go, no, just pick the 11 best cricketers. Yeah. But there's no reason why your 11 best cricketers can't be decent blokes and also uh, build towards the team. The team elements are a massive one. And that's why the success has been how it is. Um, I mean, the example that springs to mind is uh, when Mallow got that 100 and in, in New Zealand and Morgs pulled him aside, as, as was reported, and just said, like, we don't do that in this team kind of thing. We, every run counts, as the, uh, as the World Cup showed. It, it, seriously, it, it, it is. And it's a really, look, everyone, it's a really interesting example and, and a really poignant example because it is true that actually everything should be geared towards the team. Um, and yeah, I suppose that's just an example that's definitely helped everyone um, and realise, okay, yeah, this is, this is still what we expect of each other. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, that's really interesting. Um, and then, then, yeah, so... Just... I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not slating anyone off there. No, no, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a really healthy example that actually the, the World Cup, that a couple of years ago shows that everyone counts and people talk about the cliche fielding, everyone counts in there and you've got to be, it's true. Like these small margins, it won't happen every game, but actually that one game and funny enough, it's the biggest game when it's the final. Um, that's when it matters. Mm. It's not, if you do these things consistently over time, you will get better and better. And actually in those close games, you'll end up on the, on the right side of them as, it, as it's shown. And um, I think that's, again, credit to Morgs really um, for driving that home and keeping consistent um, and authentic with that. Mm. Um, and then with, when you talked a lot about when, when you had that New Zealand series, um, a lot of the kind of, uh, Owen Morgan was very good at making you guys feel like you could play your natural games. Um, were there any instructions like that in that Lions tour um, when you guys were scoring 370? Or was it, was it just a case of guys were playing their natural games and that was, it was literally as simple as that? Look, I'm, I'm sure we... I'm sure it was talked about. I can't remember, if I'm honest. But I think the, the thing that struck me was that Andy Flower and Thorpe, who were, who were coaches of that Lions team, um, really drove home that we'd been picked based on how we've gone about our business in county cricket and also performance-wise. So just just play that. Just You don't have to turn up to the lines. I think in the past, you've kind of turned up and gone, right, I've got to be the perfect player and I've got to play a, a way that certain other people want me to play or you, you think that's the case um, when it's not. So I think there would have been conversations around that uh, I can't remember exactly, but um, I think that's a positive thing that there was definitely no conversation saying, don't do this, don't do that. It was completely the opposite. It was, it was very encouraging and, and very supportive in the way we wanted to go about it. And I think it maybe actually showed a lot of people that where we could get to as well, um, going, right, geez, where, where can we take this? Uh, a kind of curiosity element as opposed to, uh, yeah, this is the way we've always played and, uh, moving the game on. Mm. 
Um, and then finally, you 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 may well not remember this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, in that final ODI of the series, um, the one where you and Bester put on that partnership, New Zealand ended up picking a guy essentially plucked from club cricket who was happened to be in the country at the time. It was a had a decent domestic record in New Zealand, um, but his name was Andrew Matheson. He barely played a professional game after that tour. Do you? Did you know that happened at the time? Do you remember what conversations were like in the England dressing room? Because I imagine there's lots of all the preparation and analysis of the opposition was going, you know, goes on nowadays at least. Um, really? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I remember the name, but geez, I um, yeah, I don't remember that at all. So, so he, he he was he was a professional cricketer. So yeah, let, let me just clarify. He, he was a professional cricketer who. Um, had done quite well in the List A comp in New Zealand the year before that. He wasn't in the New Zealand squad. He was playing club cricket in Devon for Sidmouth CC around about that time. And I think there was a couple of injuries and he ended up um, he ended up playing. Um, and I think, I might, might have got this wrong, but Craig Overton, I think, was, was added to the squad. I don't think he played, but he was added to the squad. And Craig was actually set to play against him in a club game. And they nearly played against each other in an ODI game. Um, it didn't quite happen, but it was very close. And uh, yeah, because you, you hear these stories from like years and years ago, but it, that it happened six years ago. Oh, no, um, no recollection at all. Like you guys weren't really aware of that. No, I do. But I just, yeah, I can't. I think we were all so focused on actually just trying to win the game and win the series. And mm. I think it was just the excitement. I remember like I've got a an invite we all got invited the New Zealand team and ourselves and only three of us rocked up but on the way up from Trent Bridge was the fourth one to Durham which is the last one on the way up we got invited to um, sorry Botham's house for a barbecue oh, just like I checked my phone I'm like sorry and like I'm like this is all new to me uh, I was just like what is going on Call my dad up and I go, I've just got a text from um, management saying we've got a, we've got a barbecue at Ian Botham's. Like, it's optional, but I'm going. He said, absolutely you're going. Anyway, only three of us turned up. Stephen Finn, myself and Morgie and then the rest of the New Zealand team. But I just thought, and I'm a bit of a badger. I don't mind, don't mind uh, admitting that. But um, I was just thinking, sorry, Ian Botham's just invited me around, well, us around his house for a barbecue and whatever like why wouldn't you say yes i mean so um yeah it was just stuff like that i think it was just we're all running on the excitement and too busy to notice everything else that was going on so um yeah it was yeah it was pretty pretty cool is that is that a regular thing uh mid-series barbecues at beefies no i can't have made an impression because i haven't been invited back so um no it's just yeah, it was amazing. But that's the thing, isn't it? You don't don't get invited to things like that. Um, pretty pretty cool. So yeah, yeah, it was a good feeling. Glass of wine, and uh, away we went. So amazing. Yeah, off to I think that's um that that's a, an apt place to to end the chat, Sam. Um, much appreciated. Uh, hope the rest of quarantine isn't too taxing for you, and uh, best of luck with the start of the season. Brilliant. Thanks, mate. So yeah, that, that series saw Roy, Stokes, Billings and Rashid either introduced or brought back into the fold. 
um, it really was a, the start of the 2019 World Cup journey, wasn't it? It was. And I don't even remember I spoke to Owen Morgan, which we featured on this podcast. I can't remember if this bit of it featured or not, but he, I asked him if, if actually it was a blessing that that World Cup went quite as badly as it did because it did give him the opportunity to have a completely clean slate. And he said, if we'd scraped through to the quarterfinals, everyone might have said, well, we didn't do that well, but you know, we could have done a little bit better if things had gone our way. With that World Cup, there was no question about it. They were terrible. They were playing the wrong form of cricket uh, and things had to change. And Paul Downton left. Morgan name-checked that and said that gave him the freedom with Strauss coming in, someone he knew well, former teammate of his. A renewed focus on on one-day cricket um, and a... I mean, I'm loath to criticise Peter Moores too much because I think he, he's got a rough deal from English cricket but I think you also have to acknowledge that Bayliss or Farbrace at this point was a sort of coach that gave Morgan freedom to to do what he wanted and to stamp his own mark on the side and, and that's absolutely what he did and it is true that the personnel obviously changed but Billings was the only England debutant in that New Zealand ODI series so it's a little bit of a myth that the whole thing changed in terms of personnel which makes it all the more incredible the results and the way they played changed so quickly because a lot of those players six of the team who played at Edgebaston in that first ODI, had been part of the World Cup squad. Butler had played in that World Cup, couldn't couldn't be himself, and then plays the innings, really, that kicks it all off at Edgebaston, hitting that hitting that 100. Um, and yeah, and, and from then on, it was just, it was, it, it absolutely set the path and gave them the confidence to to follow that over the next four years um, with Morgan leading from the front. New Zealand are also almost the perfect opponent as well, you know, you had Brendan McCullum, who's, you know, back in those days was a complete sort of breath of fresh air in terms of being an international career captain. Always spoke very well, always talked about sort of like the, the game being, a, uh, the, the, the game itself being more important than the individual playing it and wanting to entertain and do all of these things. Um, and so you had, you had this idea of two teams who were going to play completely, you know, free and easy cricket against one another. Might not have happened if it had been in Australia and there'd been more pressure. Maybe I don't know. And one team, you know, the, the teams had not kind of complemented each other so beautifully in terms of just going toe to toe and just you know, Hearns Hagler swinging each other for for the five matches. Um, it, again, it might not have come come about. But um, you know, I, I think the the point about there not being that many play, you know, only the one player making a debut in the series is an important one. Because what it did show you was that the change of personnel, or at least the change of outlook from the personnel, um, did as much to change around the results as you know a, a completely new broom coming in and just picking up, picking extra play or different players from county cricket. That wasn't what happened. They picked players that they'd had in there already, had already identified as being good enough or explosive enough to play, but then sort of shackled them in the way that they were asked to do, to go about it. Whereas Morgan came in and went, well, you know, you guys are incredible. Incredible ball strikers, blokes who can take wickets in the middle middle periods of innings. We're just going to go in there and play to all of your strengths rather than trying to conform to some strange idea of what 50-over cricket used to look like. Mm. I think it's quite interesting that, uh, A, Billing says that they never mentioned the World Cup once in that series. But also, I get your point that the personnel was, by and large, there. Ben Stokes had played a fair bit of ODI cricket before that World Cup. They didn't take him because they were using him as a as a bowling all-rounder who batted at eight. And then on that Lions tour, he... he he got one huge score. England Lions scored 370 a couple of times. And it just, it's, I think it's more just kind of letting the guys play their natural games um, and feeling that they could do that without, you know, I, I put it to Billings that it's 
quite hard to bat a number seven in, in white ball cricket, especially if you're a specialist number seven. And you've kind of got to feel um, like, you know, you, you can bat as aggressively as batting number seven should allow you to be, which I thought was quite interesting. I thought also, and Benny's kind of alludes to this, that the personal milestones really cease to mean much at all. And this that reminded me of speaking to Jason Roy, I think at the start of 2019, maybe 2018, about, because I think at that point he'd just beaten what had been Robin Smith's record for the highest ODI score by an England batsman, which Alex Hales had passed. Um, and then Roy had beaten that. And Roy kind of barely really understood what he knew he'd done something, but didn't really know exactly what record was. There'd been no real recognition of it in the changing room because that wasn't the important thing. And I think Roy, a couple of years earlier, had had the chance here actually at the Oval against Sri Lanka. I think he was about five within Smith's record had 12 overs to go, so could have just knocked it around for an over and had got there. He had no idea that record existed, didn't care about it. It wasn't what the team focus was on. Uh, and I think that's been so important to the way that England play because players don't slow down when they get into the 80s and 90s. If anything, they go quicker. Um, to show apart- that they don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I think there is an element of that. There is that showiness. And I think Ben Stokes does that a lot. It, it, there is a showiness that it's for the team rather than the individual, which actually serves a purpose in itself. Uh, because it kind of shows up anyone who's who's not doing that. And look, we, we know an incident which Billings referred to of, of David Milan, who fell foul of that and has probably got more stick than he than he deserved because it is so anti what Morgan's ethos is, is all about. But I think that's hugely important. That it's team totals, it's not individual it works, totals. And it works both ways too, because the, the, other, the other side of it, again, that, that Sam sort of alluded to, is there's no, rec- no recriminations. Yeah. You don't get slated walking back in the dressing room for, for holding out a long off or deep mid wicket first ball or whenever it might be there is you don't you do not find your approach or your dismissal counting against you in the dressing room because as long as you're taking the a, a positive option one that is going to you know is going to score maximum amount of runs in terms of the team total you're not going to go back in there and find yourself being hauled over the coals for a, for a sort of slight misjudgment in terms of your thinking um, and that I get that I've I've played in teams where that's the case, um, and it's unbelievably liberating. It's bloody dangerous for the opposition. It's actually quite dangerous for you from time to time because you can get bowled out for sixty doing it. But you know what I mean. You get bowled out for sixty, and the captain comes in and goes, "Oh well, come on, let's go and have a drink. Yeah, we'll do it again tomorrow." And you get five hundred the next. You know, you know what I mean. Which, to be honest, happened quite a lot with that England side. Yeah, but but the, if you're playing with that level of that level of risk. You're gonna you're gonna collapse every once in a while. Um, your your Surrey skipper Adam Holyoke was sort of a prototype for what we're talking about, entirely, right? Entirely, that's exactly what I'm talking. He is exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. We're not worried. It's not a problem. Alistair Brown, if you think you can get two hundred a day, try and get him in thirty overs. You know that sort of you know nonsense. But it but but it's you know in in theory it's not going to work every day. But what it does do is it gives it gives everybody the sort of like. There's no stress, you know what I mean. It, it takes away that the idea that you're you're likely to lose your place if you make a if you make a daft call. Um, you know, people people do lose their places. Yeah, of course they do. They, they lack lack of form or whatever. But the the ethos running through the eleven players is that you do this two or three times in a row in the in the midst of a series like this. It's not going to count against you. What would count against you is if you going into your shell and playing for your own numbers. And us losing anyway. That was that's what will count against you, and that's it's very liberating. It's also sort of stating the obvious, but you got to have the players <laughs> to be able to play like that. It's no good saying, right, we're all going to go out and play our shots if you're not good no, enough. Exactly. And, but, and, you know, and but Surrey had it. But isn't that, that isn't that entirely the point? You know, you kind of 
the captain, Owen Morgan says, right, well, I want Ben Stokes in my team, but he's not batting at eight, he's going to bat three, or, you know, wherever he's been batting for Durham. We're going to put, we're going to give people the chance to, to show what they can do, not based around, um, not based around, well, you know, so-and-so should be batting at number four in this team. You, we're going to put you somewhere where you can create the most havoc, where your abilities can, can, can cause the most damage to the opposition. Um, you know, and, and so on that score, yes, the, the selectors have to identify the right players, but I think we've already established that they had done. They'd already established, they'd already identified them. They just hadn't, they just hadn't put them in the right positions and given them the license to go and do what it was that they did best. It's almost like, you know, you get selected and the reason that you've been picked goes out the window. We want you to conform to this, to this other way of playing, this safe way of playing. Um, and that's where the, that's where his messaging was, is so strong and continues to be so strong um, in the England scene. I guess it, helped as well that it was a five match series from that point of view like if um if it's a three match series it's almost a bit harder to you, you can basically back that top seven to say uh go out and play a natural game and they might think to themselves okay well if i do that hopefully it'll come off one time out of five and they've seen what i can do whereas if it's a bit shorter well uh, but then you say that i mean again we're talking right at the very beginning of, of the, the journey but they kind of you know it came off for them in the first they continued to do it right the way through there weren't very many setbacks but you know that i can still remember rumblings oh my goodness you know they're going to go out there and slog from ball one again they only needed 150 and lost the, you know that type of thing but but morgan never never changed his mind and so by the time they got through to tournament play which is which i think the, the point you're making the three match series you know, that, that feels like it's very short and you haven't got much room for error. But knockout matches, there is no room for error. And England still did the same thing. And it was the, the only thing that, that, that changed things for, for England in that World Cup was conditions. Suddenly, England, <laughs> having played wherever they played for the, the four-year cycle going onwards, where the pitches were all belters and, and the, the ball was disappearing at the park, we suddenly found ourselves on all these, you know, 240 plays, 240 decks at home. And that wasn't the case, you know, that wasn't because they st- they tightened up. That was because nobody could score more than 240 on the decks that were being provided for the World Cup. I think as well that that New Zealand series was really important in, in getting the media on side as well, because that that is in players' minds a lot of the time. And a lot of them will admit it after the, the fact that you've got to feel like you can go out there. And it's the same, the, the lack of recriminations from the dressing room. There was also got to a point where people got behind what Morgan was trying to do, partly because the World Cup had been so pathetic that players did have that freedom. And I think all of us as as journalists or pundits or ex-players were like, great, we're ready for something new. Please give us something new. We can't have this same old... But, but of- also it was fun to, it's fun to watch. Even when it goes wrong, it's fun to watch. You know, if, if it goes wrong, the game's over in, in 25 overs. You can write your copy and go and do something else with your day. You know what I mean? 50 over cricket was on its knees in this country up, up until that point. You know, people would were genuinely saying, why do we bother with this format anymore? You know, 20 over cricket's fine. Why waste eight and a half, nine hours of your day watching this? It's terrible. And then suddenly it wasn't terrible anymore. That, that concept that you uh, not batting your 50 overs was considered absolutely criminal. That was just the worst thing you could do in, in 50 over cricket. And suddenly Morgan was like, well, hang on, what's the point? If we can get to a higher total in quicker time rather than just batting until for the sake of it, then what is the point? And, and completely threw that on its, turned that on its head. Uh, and they did get bowled out quite a lot, uh, having already got past, what, 330, 350? Yeah, I remember um, the, the that first game where they were 220 for, 200 odd for six and then getting 400, just being in total awe. Uh, like how 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 have England done this? Like any old team, you know, four game four any team getting four hundred is amazing. But how how have England like two games after World Cups done it? 
um yeah that was that was amazing yeah and just the the, the narrative of it being new zealand was just so perfect because we talked about the, the thrashings in the world cup new zealand was the worst of them when saudi took seven for and then mccullum hit i think a 29 ball 77 and so what and while morgan maybe needed the bangladesh result uh to go against england to sort of get everyone else on, on his side I, he, I think he's on record as saying that's the game that new zealand game was when he realized that it kind of needed to change because he saw how new zealand played and just totally destroyed england so for that for that for that then to be their first opponents and england to then go toe-to-toe with them actually come out on top playing in that exact fashion and then to beat them in the world cup final uh four years later it's just all so so perfect basically mm. anyway that's all we've got time for in the hey, show what, what about oh, moment of the week oh, sorry what's your moment of the week i mean crying out loud it's the only reason i turn up <laughs> <laughs> um no it's going to be mark stoneman getting 100 yes um return to form really nice piece um by Will McPherson in the standard about uh, his his son's heart condition, which has kind of had a, a major effect on on him and on his thinking now, but also during the the, the time where he was he's been in the doldrums for the last three years after being left out of the England side. Um, and the reason that, uh, that it struck me was because of the conversation we had last week about Graham Gooch and the kind of like him being able to use. Um, the peripherals, you know, the bad stuff happening in, in in on the outside of cricket as a spur. And Mark Stoneman sort of goes into great length about how he found it impossible to kind of compartmentalise what was going on in his home life and still be successful as, as a batsman and a cricketer. So I just felt like it was kind of a nice little follow-on from something that we'd already mentioned. Mm. We Absolutely. don't just throw this stuff together, you know. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, Absolutely. it's, a, it's a brilliant interview, that. I mean, he, he has a really good way of describing how uh, it affects his cricket. He said it was like a computer where you've got lots of programs running and even if they're in the background, it sort of takes up the processing power so that that main program which you're trying to use at that time is running that little bit slower, which I thought was a, a very eloquent way of putting it. Uh, I Also, I think it's just a lesson to to us journalists to kind of, uh, you know, you, you never know what's going on in someone's personal life at the time. It's very easy to look at, you know, Mark Stoneman uh, doing okay in the ashes and then coming back and struggling in county cricket artists and being like, oh, it's that traditional thing of a cricketer who's you know had a taste at the top level and then uh there's all of a sudden the, pre- the pressure's on and then they can't do it and there's like so much more to it that's uh we just got to keep in mind the possibility that there's something that you don't know about i guess um mm. and yeah it's a credit it, to him for speaking out and well uh, done for will for writing and it. it's yeah it's a really really good interview you can find that on the evening standard website or in the paper itself um i think that is it for the show though that is it unless anyone else wants to get anything in there no no all good um cheers joe cheers butch cheers ben this has been the wizarding cricket weekly podcast if you enjoyed the show hit the hit the like button hit the subscribe button and we'll be back next week cheers Podcast Network.